glad that you're listening to this podcast. This podcast is a ministry of the Bonners Ferry Baptist Church and of Pastor Devin Neal. All right, let's stand if you would. Revelation chapter 1, beginning in verse 17. We'll read down through verse 20. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. And he laid his right hand upon me, saying unto me, Fear not, I am the first and the last. I am he that liveth and was dead. Behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And have the keys of hell and of death. Write the things which thou hast seen, and the things which are, and the things which shall be hereafter, the mystery of the seven stars which thou sawest in my right hand, and the seven golden candlesticks, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven candlesticks which thou sawest are the seven churches. Thank you. you may be seated. We end chapter 1 in verse 20 with the Lord giving John an interpretation of his vision. Throughout the book of Revelation, there are going to be things that are symbolic or allegorical when they are. God will give an explanation. So, for instance, Revelation 17, there is the great whore, and the Bible explains that is not talking about a literal woman. It is talking about a religious system, and she's on seven uh, hills, and we can draw analogies to Catholicism, whether that's what it's speaking of for sure or not. We don't know for sure, but what we do know is that it's, it's allegory. There are other parts of Revelation where it talks about the blood flowing uh, to, the, to the bridles of a horse. That's not allegorical. We'll accept that that's literal because that's the way it's given to us. Anytime you turn the Bible into a set of codes or complete allegory, you're going to miss something. God explains himself. When God speaks in metaphor, you'll know it. So, for instance, Jesus is the lion of the tribe of Judah. We know it's not calling Jesus a physical lion. It's metaphor. God uses all parts of speech. He is a master of language. Any language he wants to be, by the way. Amen? God is not like us. He's not limited by barriers that we are. And so God is... If you ever think about how the Bible is constructed, God had it written in such a way that it would not only be given uh, to a certain generation, but it would work in every generation. God wrote it in such a way that the Bible speaks and it's living and applicable to every generation. Not just every generation, but in multiple tongues written in a tongue and then preserved in other tongues and retranslated and printed in other tongues so that it can pass through the language barriers and still speak to people. Not only that, it can speak to people that are from different cultures. It can speak to people that are from different uh, educational backgrounds. God's Word can speak to someone as educated as Nicodemus or uneducated as the woman at the well. God wrote His Word in such a way that He can communicate through the Scripture Only God could give us such a book that a four or five-year-old child can hear it preached and taught, understand it and believe it, or a 40 or 50-year-old nuclear scientist can be convicted by it and reproved and get saved because he's trying to prove that it's wrong. I've heard of such things. I'm going to prove the Bible wrong. And it broke him down and saved him. My point is this. Only God could give us such a book. And we ought to stand in awe of it tonight. Amen? And so as we conclude chapter 1 and get into chapter 2, uh, we have, uh, we'll be looking next week at the church at Ephesus, and each church is going to have some distinctive things. But as he leads into explaining the vision of the candlesticks, he says back here in, cha- in verse 17, we know that John saw him, fell at his feet as dead. We looked at that last time. 
And when that happens, the Lord speaks to him. And I believe not only speaks to John, but it's a message, of course, to us as well. And he lays his hand on John, verse 17. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead, and he laid his right hand upon me, saying unto me, Fear not, I am the first and the last. Now, I want you to get a hold of this. This is the same Lord that in the vision has the seven stars, seven angels are in his right hand. What, a, what an authority, what a God who holds angels in his right hand. But he takes the same hand that's holding angels and lays it on John. It's a picture of meekness. People think that meekness is weakness. That's not true. Meekness is the restraint of power for the blessing of those that I'm touching. That's what meekness is. Jesus Christ had the power to create and cast angels down, and yet he laid that same right hand on John and said, Fear not. That is the outlook. If you're keeping notes tonight, we begin in verses 17 18 with a proper outlook as we continue into the book. It's the outlook we need to have. We need to understand who it is that's giving us this book. And by the way, you study from Genesis to Revelation, you find the two words, fear not, and very very close in proximity to that commandment, you're going to hear the Lord either saying, I am with you, or I am this, or I am this. Uh, God told Joshua to be strong and of a good courage, for I am with thee, I will not leave thee, I will not forsake thee. We're told in Hebrews 13 uh, that we are to be, we're to have courage, we're not to be afraid, because he hath said, I will never leave thee, nor forsake thee, meaning our, our courage and our absence of fear is not because we don't live in a dark world and it's not because there aren't dangerous things. What takes away our fear is the presence of Christ. I don't want you to miss that tonight. The, abs- the, the, the taking away of our fear is not by taking away dangers. God's about to unveil some things to John. It's a, it's a bleak, it's a dark future for this world until the Lord comes and establishes His kingdom and gives us a new heaven and a new earth. There are some things in here that can scare you, the plagues and so forth that God's going to talk about. But as, as the, and if you get a glimpse of Christ, you get an understanding of how great He is and how weak and, and, and powerless we are. But the truth is, if we approach Christ as John approached Christ, humbly submitted and in faith, He'll say to us, fear not. I would encourage you to do a study sometimes on how many times God has commanded us, fear not. I'm going to use an illustration tonight. It may seem a little unkind, but I think it's needful to use. As we drove in tonight, we drove past the Kingdom Hall. They only started meeting again a couple of months ago. So for two years, they refused to meet out of fear of the virus. Uh, and as we drove by tonight, we're watching leadership people that I know are in leadership there get out of their car and immediately put their mask on. I'm not making fun of them. I'm telling you, there's a religion that's based in fear. Every cult, every false religion is based in fear. Fear of man. How many of you know in Revelation 21, verse 8, the first two categories of people that are in the lake of fire are the fearful and unbelieving. The fearful and unbelieving. By the way, those two things cannot be disconnected. Fear is the product of unbelief. I'm talking about not the fear of God. John is on his face in the fear of God. That's reverence. We're talking about the fear of what might happen, what will be, what's going to take place. What if something kills me? What if something destroys me? What if my life doesn't go the way I want it to? What if things fall apart? What if the world governments collapse? What ah, What if? Revelation is not written to put those two words in your mind, what if. The Lord says, I am. That's all we need to know. 
That's what he says to John. John is on his face before the Lord Jesus. He must be wondering what's taking place. He had never seen Christ in this fashion, even on the Mount of Transfiguration. Christ here, his feet as brass, eyes as a flame of fire, hair as white as snow. Very clearly a righteous judge coming with judgment. And John said, I fell at his feet as dead. But the Lord says, no, John, I don't want you. For God hath not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. May I say this, the return of Jesus Christ is a source of comfort to the child of God. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 says, after saying that he'll come and we'll meet him in the clouds, wherefore comfort one another with these words. And so then what the Lord says to him in, in getting John and us to have a proper outlook about the book of Revelation, he says, fear not. And then he tells him why not. In verse 17, fear not, I am. The second, the next two words after saying fear not is, fear not, I am. I am the first and the last. You know what he's talking about? I am the creator. Jesus is reminding John, who was it pinned down the words? In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. John pinned those words down, and the Lord's having to remind him, hey, 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 you don't have to fear me. I'm the first and the last. I'm the first and last. I'm the creator. So then he goes on to say, I'm the first and the last. Then he says, I am he that liveth and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. The first statement deals with his deity or his divinity. The second statement deals with his humanity. Remember, John, I came. I died the death of humanity. I died and tasted death for every man. But I did what no other man can do. I conquered death, and I'm alive forevermore. You know what? When you have, What's the worst thing can happen to you tonight? You say, well... There are things worse than death. I agree. The kind of death Jesus died must have been worse than the death itself. But you know what? He went through it and came out on the other side victorious. He was reminding John, when I'm at your side, I have gone through every horror known to mankind and I've conquered it. I, I've died and I'm alive forevermore. Let me ask say tonight, I'm going to say it, I, I am not about to get over the wonderful truth of the resurrection of Christ. You know what gives boldness in preaching the gospel? I can tell someone with an absolutely clear conscience, if you would call on Jesus Christ tonight, on the authority of His Word, He will hear you and save you. You know how I can say that? Because He is alive. You know what takes our fear away? I remember for years and years and years, and I'm not saying I've arrived and I've conquered this, because I've not, I still face fears. But I remember for the longest time... I I got gun-shy about talking to strangers about the Lord. Just really gun-shy. There was a time maybe I wasn't so much, and then you get cussed out a time or two, or people say nasty things or get angry, and you kind of go, yeah, do I want to do this? And then you get nervous and think, well, I want to do this the right way. I want to make sure that I'm a successful witness, and how do I go about this? And you think of, maybe I could say this, and maybe I could say this. And next thing you know, when you've got to try to talk to somebody about the Lord, you're all on pins and needles. Because they think, I want, what should I say? What should I not say? Is this the right opening statement? And you get so focused on yourself and your performance. And finally the Lord said, why don't you remember this? I'm with you. You're going to have to do what I told you. You don't have to premeditate a thing. I will guide you through the entire process. And I can walk up and talk to somebody now in the snow. The Lord, the Lord will direct. He'll give me wisdom. He'll, he'll remind me of Scripture. He's with me. You know what the most comforting thought to me in the world is this? The Lord is with me. 
How many ever go to pray and you think, I don't know what to pray. I don't know what to ask for. And the Lord says, I'm with you. Why don't you rely on me and I'll direct you. Amen. The point is this. As John is there in fear, the Lord says, I am the first and the last. I am your creator. I am he. I was dead and I'm alive forevermore. I am the Christ. I'm the one who came and took your place. I've conquered death. And that brings us to the third thing he tells John is he's the creator. He's the Christ. And therefore he is the conqueror. Verse 18, I am he that liveth and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And have the keys of hell and of death. I love that he doesn't say, I have the keys. He said, I have them. I have the keys of hell and of death. You know who's got the key to that dungeon of hell? Jesus Christ does. He holds the key. He went and conquered it. We don't have time to go into a lot of other texts. You can look in your own time at Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14. Wonderful verse on how he, the Lord Jesus, through death, destroyed him that had the power of death. That is the devil. You understand tonight when your trust is in Christ, Satan can't touch you because Christ has the keys. Satan no longer holds the keys of hell and death. People think that he's the master of hell. There's only one person that has the authority to cast you into hell, and that's God. Satan doesn't have the authority to cast anybody into hell. All he can do is deceive you about Jesus Christ. But only Jesus has the power to cast into hell and the power to deliver from hell because he has the key. That ought to make us excited tonight, amen, that we have faith in the Son of God who's living, and as we approach the book of Revelation, we need to remember it's the revelation of Jesus Christ. So it's not something to the believer in Christ that should cause us to have fear and trepidation. No, 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 no. We ought to remember who it is that gave us this, our Creator, the Christ who died for us and conquered death and hell for us. Therefore, we do not approach it with a sense of of fear, but rather of confidence in Him. And so then, once again, 2 Timothy 1, 7, For God hath not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of sound mind. The only person that ought to be afraid today is a person that's on the wrong side of Christ. The unbeliever in Christ ought to be trembling because he's under the condemnation and wrath of God. All right, so that's a, a, a proper outlook as we approach the book. Number two, verse 19 gives us a precise outline, a precise outline. And we've alluded to this, and some of you who have studied the book of Revelation are going to be aware and familiar with this already. I'm always encouraged when I read other people who have been preaching and teaching and studying longer than I and have been alive longer than I, some alive and are, in, are now in heaven, there is, there is just there's broad agreement that this is God giving us an outline of the book and it, it, it just lines up. Verse 19, it says, Write the things which thou hast seen. All right, English students, what tense is that in? Past tense, meaning everything that you've seen up to this point, write it. So obviously John obeyed because we are, we, he writes down. What it's talking about there is chapter 1, verses 1 through uh, 18, write the things which thou hast seen. So the outline of the book, the things which John had seen, the vision of Christ and of the seven candlesticks and Christ in the midst. He writes that down. Of course, he'll see other things. But at this point, there's some things he's already seen. And the Lord says, write the things that thou hast seen. Then he goes on to say, and the things which are. So you're going to write the things you've already seen and the things which are. Chapters 2 and 3 are going to be the things which are. He's going to have him write to seven Literal, practical, existing churches. Things which are. Chapters 2 and 3 are the things which are. And then he's going to say in verse 19, and the things which shall be hereafter. That's chapter 4, verse 1, all the way to chapter 22, verse 21. So you got 
Chapter 1, verses 1 through 18, the things which thou hast seen. Chapters 2 and 3, the things which are. And chapters 4, on to the end of the book, the things which shall be hereafter. And uh, that's, that's the way you can look at this. One of the interesting things you're going to see, even already in chapters 2 and 3, is a constant shifting of view from heaven to earth. Once you get to chapter 4, John is caught up to heaven and he's going to give us a view of God's perspective. Then he's going to be on earth. He's going to give us a view of man's perspective. And even here, you're going to have the seven churches of Asia Minor. That's an earthly perspective, but they're pictured as seven golden candlesticks with Christ in the midst. That's a heavenly perspective. Can I just say this tonight? In general, when you're studying your Bible, a lot of confusion can be removed if we'll say, am I being told this from God's perspective or man's perspective. So, for instance, your salvation, from God's perspective, you're already glorified. Is it not done? That's God's perspective. What is hidden from God? Is anything in the future hidden from God? Does he not see the end from the beginning? So there are things that God says in the Bible that are from a a divine perspective, which you and I have a hard time grasping because we're not divine. But then from the human perspective, we're not yet glorified. We're still stuck in this old body. But the fact of the matter is, in God's perspective, we're seated in the heavenlies. From a human perspective, we're still walking on earth. Are both true at the same time? Yes. Yeah, so as we read our Bible, it's very important to ask, where, what perspective am I getting? And we'll see that through the book of Revelation as well. Uh, and I just want to throw that in there as we talk about the outline of the book. So we get, we've been given a proper outlook, verses 17 and 18, as we see... Uh, there's a call to peace, fear not, because of a comprehension of his person. He's the creator, Christ, and conqueror. That should take away our fear. Number two, we're given the precise outline. Write the things which thou hast seen, the things which are, and the things which shall be hereafter. And then thirdly, in verse 20, we're given a preparatory overview. He's going to give us an overview of these seven churches. Before he gets into the, the specific messages to each of the seven churches, He's going to speak of them as a whole again. Uh, Three times in chapter 1, he refers to the seven churches. In verse 4, verse 11, and in verse 20. So he says here, he says, The mystery of the seven stars which thou sawest in my right hand and the seven golden candlesticks. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. And the seven candlesticks which thou sawest are the seven churches. Now, Someone's always bound to ask the question, those seven angels, what are the seven angels? Many people you're going to read are going to say they were the pastors of those seven churches or the seven bishops. And the reason they'll say that is the word angel means messenger. My problem with that is this. In other portions of the Bible where God wants you to know about a bishop, guess what he'll say? The bishop. And maybe I'm a little too narrow-minded and simplistic-minded. I personally believe they're angels. That's just where I'm at. Uh, you know why? It says angels. I, if anybody said, oh, angel Neil, I'd say, stop it. <laughs> no, 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 no. I'm nothing close to that. So I don't understand. You say, does every church have an angel? Apparently so. <laughs> what we do know is they were a messenger to those seven churches. I personally, and I've got good good brethren who would teach this, is talking about the pastors of the churches. I just, I don't hold to that because I don't, I don't believe God messed up in the translation of the Bible. I believe he says angels, he means angels, amen? And so what those angels, does that mean every church has an angel? These seven churches did, and I believe they're angels. And so uh, here's, here's what we don't want to miss. Okay, we can get real focused on what are the angels of the churches. Where were the angels at? In his right hand. 
This ought to remind us tonight of the power and the preeminence of the Lord Jesus Christ. Hebrews chapter 1 says that angels worship Him. 1 Peter chapter 3 tells us that all power and principality is under His feet. There's nothing other than God the Father that's not under the authority of Jesus Christ. So the major message here is not that every church had an angel. The message is that the angels of the churches are in the right hand of Jesus Christ. That means who's the manager and primary chief overseer of every church. If he oversees the angels that are over the churches, that makes him the head of all principality and power. That's the emphasis, is that the angels of the churches, these messengers from heaven to the churches, whether they go back and report, I don't know. I don't understand. Angels are still a bit of a mystery. It's a mysterious aspect of of God's creation to some degree. Uh, But the fact of the matter is, is they're in the right hand of the Lord Jesus Christ. Then he gets very clear that the seven candlesticks are the seven churches. Now, we're going to look at those three three times that it's mentioned in chapter 1. It's in verse 4 and then verses 11 through 13 and then again in verse 20 and just gain some things about the churches that will help. We are living in the period of time that John writes about the things which are. That's where we're living. We're not living in, the, in what he saw. That's past. We're not living in the things which shall be hereafter. That's future. We're still living in the period where God is working through local New Testament churches. That's his work on earth, and that's where we're living at. So it's very important for us to understand, especially this, this phase of time. Here's something I find interesting. I read um, uh, an author this evening, and he pointed out, unlike the candlestick in the temple or the tabernacle, it was one candlestick with seven branches. Not here. It's seven candlesticks with one person in the midst. And what he pointed out was God's, God's will for the church is for us to function. We don't have to be all brought together under one organization. We all have to be submitted to one person. The unity of the churches is not through ecumenicism. Don't miss this tonight. That is, that is a message preached by Satan's crowd to get us to deny good doctrine. Ecumenicism has never been birthed out of God-fearing, Bible-believing, Christ-loving people. You say, you don't think anybody ever like that gets caught up in it? I didn't say that. I said it was not birthed from that. We are, we are unified by our faith in Christ. We are not unified by laying down our faith. We are unified by being loyal and true to the faith. We are not unified by a spirit of unity. We are unified by the unity of the spirit meaning when you and I submit to Him, we're unified with each other. You say, you say that a lot. It's needful to say a lot. We have a lost world with the spirit of Antichrist preaching, agree or get canceled. (laughs) That's the kind of unity the world is preaching. We need unity. God calls for unity. God has told us how to have unity, and the way to have unity is not by merging all the churches in one common hodgepodge, it's by each and every one being submitted to the Savior. And I think one of the things that's... I don't, I don't want us to miss the practicality of the seven churches. It's the, one of the first points we're going to give you here in just a moment. As we get this overview of the churches, the first thing we'll look at is in verse 4, and that's the proximity of these churches. While there is some spiritual application, while there is probably some um, eschatological, if I can use that word, I don't like to use it much, but the uh, application of prophetic about the ages and so forth. There may be some of that with the seven churches. You know what we know about the seven churches? Here's the primary interpretation. There were seven churches in literal places. 
Uh, today it would be modern day Turkey. Some of these cities are, you can go to Ephesus and visit there today. You can go to some of these uh, cities in, uh, in what's today, it's, it's Turkey and it's a region of Turkey. I was doing some research on it today that makes up most of, of Turkey. It's the westernmost region uh, of, of Turkey that, that these seven churches would have been in. Uh, but the proximity of them, once you think about it this way, as I understand Turkey today is about the size, it's, it's just smaller than the states of Texas and Louisiana combined. So then you put seven churches in that region, and that's, that's the kind of region the Lord's dealing with. And it's almost as though he uses this. We know there were more, more than seven churches in existence at that time, but we know that one of those churches was where the seat of Satan was. <laughs> What's ironic is here you have seven churches, many of them struggling. So what we... We've heard it taught so much that those churches represent different ages of church history. And I'm not saying they don't. I can understand why we think that, but that's not what's spelled out here. What I don't want us to miss is when this was written, these were seven churches located in an area smaller than the combination of Texas and Louisiana combined. And yet look at the, look at the differences between these seven churches. They had meaning at any given time in history, you can have churches that represent everything that was going on in those seven churches. You can have a church of Philadelphia within a couple of hours of a Laodicean church. Is that not true today? Can you not have a church that's on fire and serving God and over here you got a church that is so carnal that it cannot see how corrupt it is? Can you not at the same time have a couple hours away a church that's under severe persecution? Here's what happens. Today we say, well, if you're not doing church like this, I mean, if you're not thriving and vibrant and, you know, this and this and this, you know. And what happens is we're not really seeing it God's way. These are all Christ churches. And they were all existent at the same time within a proximity of one another that would be driving distance for any of us today. And yet look at the, look at the differences of their strengths, their weaknesses, their problems that they were dealing with. And that ought to help us today. This is before a century had passed since Jesus' resurrection, and you see the struggle that's taking place between Satan and God's churches. Listen, we are not living in a perfect world yet. And we are not living in a world that's getting better. Evil men and seducers are waxing worse and worse. But we here, here's what we might think. If Jesus is the conquering king, his churches shouldn't be struggling. But you're going to see in Revelation 2 and 3. He is the same yesterday and today and forever, and yet he had churches that were struggling. He had churches that were under duress. He had churches that were being opposed. He had churches that were not responding to his beck and call. And if it was true 2,000 years ago, it's true today. So it's important for us to understand some things about these churches. The proximity, that just deals with where they were. Geographically, these were close, and yet they were very unique and distinct one from another. I would just say this, another side point. If you're going to form a convention of churches, those seven should have done it. They could have been the, you know, the the Baptist Convention of Asia Minor. <laughs> but they weren't. They were each individually responsible and accountable to him. So the proximity of the churches you see in verse 4 when it says, John to the seven churches which are in Asia. Grace be unto you and peace and so forth. Then if you look at verse 11, we're just going to see the practicality which I've already alluded to. Verse 11, Jesus speaking, saying, I'm Alpha and Omega, the first and the last, and what thou seest write in a book, and send it unto the seven churches which are in Asia. Now he's going to name them. Unto Ephesus, and unto Smyrna, 
and unto Pergamos, and unto Thyatira, and unto Sardis, and unto Philadelphia, and unto Laodicea. Again, here's where there's some overlap in the lesson on the church in Sunday school. If these seven churches were this close, why not just send it to the headquarters of all those seven churches there in Asia? Because no such animal exists from God's standpoint. Every local church is answerable directly to the Savior. And that's what we find here in the last book of our Bible. The Lord never uh, planned for some extra-biblical outside of the local church to take governance over local churches. I'm, I'm all for fellowship. Let me just give you a side note here. I go to fellowships. I go to pastors' fellowships. I need fellowship. I need preaching. I need to talk to other preachers. There are times they need to talk to me. I'm all for fellowshipping. But when a fellowship gets to the place where it starts telling churches how to be, that's overstepping its boundaries. That's how we've gotten in a lot of trouble in our churches. Every church is answerable directly to the one who stands in the midst. You know what that's saying? He's got his hand on every one of them. He is faithfully managing all his churches. I believe this. Seven is a number of completion or perfection. It seems to me everything that a church could face is represented in these seven churches. False doctrine, immorality, false teachers, um, women preachers. They had a Jezebel in one of the churches. Um, uh, Persecution, satanic opposition. I mean, pretty much everything a church could potentially face, these seven churches are facing it. Uh, The failure to lukewarmness. I mean, that's what was killing one of these churches. And as a local church, we would do well to take heed and say, okay, what are we facing? We're living in a sin-cursed world, but here's the point. The risen Son of God is in the midst, and His sufficiency is greater than whatever it is we are facing. And so the practicality of these churches, there are seven local New Testament churches all in existence at the same time. Now, what we will hear is because we are living in what we'll call the church age, that these churches seem to represent phases of history. And you can see a correlation. You can. You can see, so for instance, people put the Philadelphia church age back in the days of Charles Haddon Spurgeon and D.L. Moody when some things were really on fire, not only on this continent, but in, the, in Great Britain. Missions works were, were going uh, great. People like Adoniram Judson back in the 1700s had there been a revival of missions and there seemed to be an open door to churches. But I'm just careful with that because many times at looking at these at the, as the church ages, we miss some of the things I'm talking to you about tonight. That at any given time in history, you can have these seven churches represented, and I believe we do. There are churches tonight who have an open door that we don't have. They are more Philadelphian than we are. Most American churches, we believe we're in the Laodicean church age because that's where we are in America. Most American churches are Laodicean, lukewarm. But that doesn't mean there aren't churches in the Philippines that are not like Philadelphia. And so my point to you tonight is the, the practicality is there are seven literal in, uh, local churches in existence at these times with these strengths, these weaknesses, these problems, these difficulties, so on. Uh, the peculiarity of the churches, again, a lot of these things are already alluded to, so I'm just going to give you the outline. Though they were all churches, though they were all symbolized by a golden candlestick, each one of them will get a very distinctly different message. Christ will will explain and describe himself differently. He's the same Savior. But he will describe himself from a different different standpoint to each of the churches based upon some of the things they're dealing with. So that tells us the Lord Jesus personally and particularly manages his churches according to our needs. He knows the heart of Bonner's Ferry Baptist Church tonight. He knows what's strong in us and he knows what's weak in us. 
He knows how to rebuke us and how to reprove us. He knows how to commend us and how to encourage us. He knows how we're responding as He knocks at our door and He will speak to us according to what He knows to be true of us. He will, he will represent Himself to us according to His own mind and will and He'll do that with each and every church in particular. These were peculiar churches. They had peculiar problems and challenges as we've already stated based upon where they were. The church at Pergamos was where Satan's seat was. I've watched this. There are certain churches that I have observed and I would say this, they have greater satanic opposition in certain places. I think of some churches in this region and I have watched how Satan has opposed the, the churches from within. He's opposed them from without. He's opposed through bad preachers, bad pastors, through people inside trying to take over. And it's unique to that region. And somebody said, would you want to pastor that church? I said, not on your life. <laughs> I would have God told me. But the fact of the matter is each, each place was unique. And we'll see that. And we'll see that more clearly as we go through the messages. So while here's what I don't want you to miss. All of them got the exact same book. They got the book of Revelation. But they all didn't get the same message. So for instance, the church at, uh, at Ephesus was told, you've got to remember where from whence thou art fallen and do the first works because you've left your first love. He didn't tell the Laodiceans that. They all had the same book. But the application of the book was different. The application was personal. May I say this? Sometimes we too generalize the Word of God. May I say this? Our Lord and Savior will tailor what comes out of this Bible to this church for this church. Amen? It is tailor-made for us. If we sometimes wonder, you know, why is the preaching taking on this direction? There are sometimes I sit back. I'm glad the Lord doesn't allow me enough foresight to plan out my messages for two years. I just, I can't do, some men do, I can't do it. The fact of the matter is, there's times I look back at messages over the last few months and look at what the Lord's giving, and I go, oh, oh, I see what he's dealing with. There's some things right now, if you said, what is the weakness of Bonner's Ferry Baptist Church? I could say, boom, this right here. I'm not going to tonight. (laughs) But the fact of the matter is, the Lord has revealed this is an area where we're weak. You said, what's the strength of Bonner's Ferry Baptist Church? It's, wow, this right here. And the point is, he tailor makes, it's all the same book. The same Bible should be preached in every church, but the application is going to be unique to the peculiar and particular needs of this church body. I think that's a wonderful thing as we look at how he addresses those seven churches. Something I just want to point out, and I may be overloading us tonight. We talked about the seven spirits. It's mentioned again later in Revelation chapter 3, I think, or chapter 2, when he's dealing with, I think, the church of Smyrna. He who has the seven spirits. And we know that the Holy Spirit of God, he's one Lord. How many of us know that? Each one of us could be described in numerous ways. So you are, you know, we'll pick on Jim. Jim is a son. Jim is a father. Jim is a brother. Jim is an employee. Jim is a citizen. Jim is a church member. Uh, Are there seven Jims? Well, in that aspect, yes. You know what I think is interesting? The first verse that tells us about the seven spirits, it's related to seven churches. The Holy Spirit of God was ministering to each church in particular. Meaning, there's not seven different Holy Spirits, but the Holy Spirit of God can minister in all places at all times. He is is not bound. And there were seven churches, and he's mentioned that there are seven spirits. Uh, There was the Spirit of God ministered particularly to each church based upon their needs. Okay, And so the proximity of the churches, the practicality, the peculiarity, the possession. I already mentioned this. The Bible says to John, write these things in a book and give it to who? 
the seven churches. You know what the churches had in their possession? They had the written word of God in their possession. They were stewards, as 1 Corinthians 4 says, of the mysteries of God. The church is the steward of the word of God. We've been given the book. We've not only been given one book, the final book, we've been given the whole book. And so then, these churches were in possession of the written word of God. You know what? They were in possession of the Holy Spirit of God. They were in possession of the written word of God. And they were under the direction of the Son of God. Is there any reason they could not have been victorious and flourish? And there's no reason we can't either. We have the same thing in our possession. We have the written word of God in our hand. So did these seven churches. They were each given the book that was written at the mouth of God through the hand of John. We've been given the same thing. And so then, that's their possession. They had the word of God in their possession that because that was their job. Uh, letter E, the position of the church. We've already referenced this as well. They're all positioned around the Son of God. There's seven golden candlesticks and Christ in the midst. The head of every church is Jesus Christ. And so then we see how he, he operates in overseeing his churches on earth. He's in the midst. That's speaking of his preeminent position uh, over the churches, his headship over the church. That's the, that's the position. They are positioned around the Son of God, he in the midst. And so then, by the way, it's interesting that God describes them not so much in the relation of their earthly geography. We know where they were. He takes more time to explain their spiritual position. Christ in the midst. And we need to understand the same, that we may be living in a wicked world surrounded by evil, but Christ is in the midst. And so then the period of the churches, we've already touched on this as well, uh, they were in the period of time which is, not that which he had seen, but that which is. It's the period in which we live right now, the period what we would call the church age. And then finally, the purpose of the, uh, the preciousness of the churches rather, they are pictured by what? Golden candlesticks. This is where I have overlap with our Sunday school lesson. You know what God was saying about a church? By the way, would you describe the Laodicean church as golden? I wouldn't, but he did. Meaning, this is speaking of the value of the institution. The value of the institution. I'm just going to say something. It's something that stirs my heart fervently. There are people who claim to be Christians and very likely are truly saved people today that don't have the time of day to invest their life in a local New Testament church. Meaning to them, the church is made out of wood, hay, and stubble. The institution is really not worth the time to invest in it. You know, I'll give the church an hour of my week, two hours of my week. The Lord Jesus said the church is golden. It's precious. It's so precious, he died to create it. That's what Ephesians 5 said. He loved the church and gave himself for Acts 20 says that he purchased it with his blood. The institution, the assembly of believers, the church is so precious to Christ that he described it with the most valuable metal on earth today. It's gold. He didn't call it brass. It's gold. And if we do not see the church as that precious, we'll not treat it as that precious. i got news for you. Most people see their job as more important than the church. Do you know how I know? They give more of their heart and soul to their job. They'll enjoy their job and sit and act like church is a, a begrudgery. Well, I'll endure another church service if I have to. Is it golden or is it wooden? <laughs> Many people treat the church like it's a thrift store. I go when I need something and I need a bargain on. So I'll go and see if I can get a little help from the church. Uh, and if I have something left over, I'll give it to the church. The Lord said it's a golden candlestick. You know what makes it golden? It's purpose. 
Number one, its purchase makes it golden. That's first and foremost. What it costs to create it. The blood of Jesus Christ had to be shed for the institution of the local church to exist. And then what makes it golden is its purpose. It is to shine in this world. And so the Lord Jesus described not one of those churches, but all seven of them as golden candlesticks, meaning the church still has value even when it's not living up to its value. Like the church of the Laodiceans, it's still a golden candlestick. He may have to remove it, put one somewhere else, but the fact of the matter is, is the local church institution is valuable in the sight of God. May it be as valuable to us as it is to Him. It should not be that Christians ought to have their arm twisted into being at church. Amen. If a person has to have their arm twisted being at church, they need to check their love for Jesus Christ. It's His body. Amen? If my wife has to talk me into spending 30 minutes with her a week, something's wrong with our relationship. She says, Nevin, I've got something wrong. I can't walk on my right leg. My knee is out of joint. And I say, I hate that. I hope you can still do your job with your knee messed up. I don't have the time or money to take you to the doctor. You'd say, boy, you don't love her very much, do you? Well, the church is his body. Huh? That's a preach for a minute. (laughs) I know I'm preaching the crowd. I'm preaching the choir. You're here tonight. When we devalue the church, we don't have God's viewpoint of it. That's just all there is to it. We don't have his view. It is worth our investment. It's worth our attention. It's worth our affection. You ought to ask yourself tonight, what has more of my attention and affection? Do Do I see the church as, well, okay, I'll endure that. And I'm not just talking about sitting through church services. I'm talking about the church, the people that make up this church. Or are we ready to love one another and invest in one another because it's golden, amen? The preciousness of the church is described as a golden candlestick. And then finally, that tells us, of course, of the purpose. The purpose of the church is to shine in a dark place. Philippians chapter 2, verses 14 through 16. Do all things without murmurings and disputings that you may be blameless and harmless, the sons of God, without rebuke in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation, among whom ye shine as lights in the world, holding forth the word of life, that I may rejoice in the day of Christ, that I have not run in vain, neither labored in vain. Paul writing to the church at Philippi when he wrote that, our job is to take the light of Jesus Christ, the light of who he is, the light of what he's done, the light of what he can do for sinners, and the light of what he's done for us, and hold it forth. Not put it under a bushel, not put it under a bed. Hold it forth. Amen? And so then tonight we see these seven churches. As we come into this, we're going to find some things out about these churches in, in particular. I want to say this. As we look at Christ speaking to the churches, you know how he represents himself? Not one representation to any one of his churches does he say, I am the, the meek and lowly carpenter. He says, I am the one who has a two-edged sword in my mouth. I am the one whose feet are of brass and eyes is a flame of fire. I am the first and the last. He reminds his churches of his authority. You know what every church needs tonight? We need a good reminder of the authority of Jesus Christ. It'd give us revival, wouldn't it? I believe it's what he's trying to give to his churches there. May God help us. Well, again, God willing, next week we'll get into the church of, of Ephesus who had left their first love. They had a lot of good things, that church. number of good characteristics but he had somewhat against them. And the Lord is the just judge. He won't, he won't forget the good things because of something he has against them, but he won't ignore what he had against them because of all the good things. He's just. And he's saying, Here's, he's judging their works is what he's doing and giving them an advance notice how they could get right with him best. Mm-hmm.